Please join with me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Lord God, author of our great story, open our hearts and minds this day to the truth you revealed through the words of Jesus. Through your spirit, make these readings come alive, not only in our imagination, but in the work of our daily lives till all the world reflects your kingdom. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus also said to the disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their homes. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the person said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. And he said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much, and the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It's good to be here again. And this is my last Sunday here at Chapelwood. I know, oh yeah, it's, it's, been, a good, it's been a good summer. Y'all are, thanks for welcoming me into your home. This is a really good community as I said before, and it's been a really fantastic summer. So thank you so much for welcoming me and making me feel at home. And y'all have great leadership here at Chapelwood. And I know that y'all have a great future ahead of y'all. Um, so after this, I'm going to Candidacy Summit, which is step two of like step 587 <laughs> in getting ordained in the Methodist Church. So I'll do that next week, and then I'll be on vacation a bit before I head back to school. So would y'all join me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, 
May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last time I opened up my sermon and I talked about the Good Samaritan. And I talked about how it was harder than I thought it was going to be. And then Peter gave me the parable of the shrewd manager, which in comparison to the Good Samaritan is like child's play. And so when I first read this parable, I could understand why maybe Peter would want to hand this one off to the intern. Because <laughs> you read it and you're like, I don't understand what Jesus is saying. And then after the fifth time, you're like, I still don't understand what Jesus is saying. But eventually, through the work of the Holy Spirit and God's grace, hopefully I got there. So would you dive into the text with me? And now I know Peter just read it, but I'm going to read it again. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in. What do I hear about you? Give an account about your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What should I do since, I, since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. 100 measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice quickly and write down 50. Next he asked, how much do you owe? 100 measures of wheat. Quickly take your invoice and write down 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted astutely, for the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. So the story itself is fairly simple. You have this guy who's basically doing a terrible job and is about to get fired. And so what he does is says, all right, I don't really have a pension or 401k to fall back on, so what I need to do is I need to make good with my master's debtors, and they'll be like, oh yeah, he's the guy that cut me a deal. He can bum off me for a couple weeks. And so it's fairly simple. But where the story gets difficult is in the application part. And so the first point I see in this parable is that God wants us to use our wealth for his kingdom. Scripture goes on, verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may welcome, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful with very little is also faithful with much. Whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? So this is the difficult part. Let's start out for a bit by looking at what unrighteous wealth means. The phrase literally in the Greek is, is wealth of unrighteousness. And this does not mean that money or wealth is inherently unrighteous. But what Jesus does is he uses a phrase that his audience would understand, uh, which had much negative connotations of the word mammon, which is wealth. And basically what Jesus is saying, if you can't be faithful with this negative word mammon, if you can't be faithful with the wealth that God has given you, then how can you be trusted with the genuine things? How can you be trusted with what is true? And the implication here is that God tests us. And God tests people all throughout scripture. Tested Abraham, Moses, Job, Peter, Paul. And we too are tested. So in the context 
of the scripture, God tests us with the little or literally insignificant things to see if we'll be faithful. It's kind of like if your parents give you $20. They say, here's $20. And you go and you spend all that money on cat posters. <laughs> and then you go and you ask your mom, mom, I want $100. What does she think you're gonna spend that money on? Cat, cat, cat posters. Cat posters, yeah, good, yeah. You don't wanna spend money on cat posters. Or it's kinda like if you want a dog and you go ask your parents and they say, all right, we'll think about letting you get a dog, but first we're gonna give you a fish to see if you can take care of an animal and not kill it. But you don't feed the fish, you don't clean the water, and you kill the fish, and then you go ask your parents, hey, can I have a dog? What are they gonna say? No, you can't have a dog. You couldn't even take care of a fish. It's the same way with God. If we are not faithful with the little small things, such as unrighteous wealth, why would, he expect, why would we expect him to give us what is genuine, what is true? So in the, man, the story, the manager is squandering the master's possessions. If we are not faithful with the money God entrusts of us, how can he trust us with what is heavenly? And Jesus uses the unrighteous wealth and contrasts that with the heavenly dwellings. In other words, if you're not faithful with money and you squander it, then how can you be expected to be faithful with godly things. Not that money is inherently unrighteous, but in comparison to what is genuine, with what is eternal, the things of God, the wealth of this world is unrighteous. And here's why Jesus makes a big point about what we do with our money. What we do with our money has a pointed way of revealing our true heart. And that makes sense when we think about it. We spend our money and time on things that matter to us, like for me, can't stand cats, hate cats. They are terrible and a great example of the fall of humanity. <laughs> so the idea of spending $20 on cat posters is ridiculous and stupid, and I have no idea why you would ever spend money on anything related to cats. <laughs> and that's because I don't value cats at all. So if I'm gonna be decorating my bedroom for this fall, I'm not gonna buy cat posters because I don't value cats at all. And the same thing goes with God. If we don't value God, we don't spend money. And so, for example, if I make a six-figure salary and I only put $20 in the offering plate, where is my heart oriented to? Unrighteous wealth or God? Be faithful to what God has given you. Don't be like the dishonest manager and squander your master's possessions. Don't squander what God has given to you. And so this is my next point that I see. It's that God looks at our heart. And after this Sunday when Peter read the scripture, I was sitting up there realizing, oh, the verses that I base this off of is not in the scripture reading, but it's okay. So verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And Jesus told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in front of others. But God knows your heart, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. And I think it's really cool that Jesus uses the phrase justify yourself, because if you remember back to my last sermon, or if you weren't here, uh, the lawyer in the Good Samaritan uses the phrase justify himself. It's what the lawyer does before the people. And if you weren't here or you just forgot, 
What it literally means is you make your righteousness known to those around you. So in other words, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. And then he does this over and over and over again. Jesus constantly calls out the Pharisees for being fake. They have a good exterior, but they're dead on the inside. The Pharisees had become really good at crafting an image for themselves that they wanted to portray. They had done a really good job of creating this false mask that looked really pretty on the outside, but was ugly and dirty on the inside. But God pierces through the false image and sees who we really are and not how they portrayed themselves to be. And we do this all the time. Like, just stop for a moment and think about your Facebook page. Facebook is a perfect example of image crafting. You don't let people see what you don't want them to see. You don't post pictures of the bad stuff you've done. You only post pictures of the good stuff. You post pictures of the highlights of your life and leave out the things you don't want anyone to see. And if you accidentally post something you didn't want people to see, well, there's a fancy little delete button. But God doesn't want us to be Facebook Christians. He doesn't want us to be people who are so focused on crafting a perfect image. He wants us to be disciples. You know why the church is losing millennials? Even if you don't want to know, I'm going to tell you. It's because they look at the church and they see a bunch of Pharisees. They are tired of seeing people who are so hard trying to justify themselves before others. People who will come to worship on Sunday once a week and maintain that perfect Christian image, but then they'll go to work on Sunday or go to school and they'll lie, cheat, verbally put down others and not live a life worthy of the calling they have received. And so if God looked at your heart, what would he see? Would he see a person who comes to church just to maintain that good Christian image? Would he see a person who pretends on Sunday to be perfect and the rest of the week lives a life of sin and is terrified what would happen if anyone found out? Would he see a person that the inside matches the out? Would he see hurt, pain, fear, and is terrified of letting that out, letting others see how we really are? And this is something that God has really laid on my heart these past couple years. For the church to have an impact in America, we need to stop pretending. We need to stop being Pharisees. If you think back to scripture, the Bible never, I mean never, covers up the flaws of any biblical characters. I have a list of biblical characters. I'm just sort of gonna run down them and all the list of flaws and sins and other things that they had. Moses was a murderer and constantly disobeys God. David was an adulterer, a murderer, and a bad father. Abraham doesn't trust God, doesn't fully obey God, and laughs at God. His wife, Sarah, laughs at God and pushes Abraham to break God's command. Solomon marries hundreds of women and worships idols. Elijah was afraid, depressed, and suicidal. Samson sleeps with a prostitute. Peter doesn't believe and trust in God and constantly puts his foot in his mouth and denies God when God needed him most. Paul was a murderer, a persecutor of the church, and self-righteous. Do I need to go on? Here's the beauty of the gospel, though, that we don't have to justify ourselves like the Pharisees because Jesus has already justified us We don't have to hide our flaws, our hurts, our fears, our pains, our sins, because Christ is greater than any baggage we might have. 
We don't fool God when we put on a fake exterior because God doesn't look at what we put on. He looks at our heart. And this can either be comforting or scary. For some of us, we may be like David. David, who was a man after God's own heart, but who was a shepherd before that. A shepherd who was the youngest of his son and in that time would have no future. But what God did is he looked at his heart and he said, you are a man after mine own heart. You will be the king of Israel. Or some of us may be like Pharisees. We put on a good show, we have a good exterior, but on the inside we're whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but dying on the inside. And that was me for the longest time. I tried so hard to keep my struggles and my sins private I was like the Pharisees. I liked to justify myself before others. I liked being the good PK that everyone looked up to. But if they could see into my heart, they would have seen a whitewashed tomb. And all of my sins came to the surface last year. All my struggles came to light that I had tried so hard to keep private were then out in the open. And it was hard to see the image I had so carefully crafted crumble down around me. But here's the best part about our God, the best part about Christianity, is that even when everything is falling apart and everything is failing and we think there cannot possibly be any hope, be any future, God is always there. And our God loves to turn a turd into a diamond. (laughs) I know, right, I know. So let's go back to the list of biblical characters, the people with all the flaws and all the sins. You have Moses, who led God's people from captivity into the promised land, or no, they didn't lead them into the promised land. Led them from captivity, wrote the first five books of the Bible. David was the greatest king of Israel and was a descendant of Jesus. Abraham becomes the father of the Israelites and so too does Sarah. And they become the father and mother of the promise that eventually is Christ. Solomon built God's temple. Samson, in his last breath on earth, ends Philistine oppression in his time. Elijah never dies and is taken up to heaven and performs many wondrous miracles in his ministry. Peter was one of the leaders of the early church and is bold for Christ and is obedient to Christ even to death on a cross like his savior. Paul spreads Christianity to the ends of the Roman Empire. All these people with all their flaws, with all their baggage, with all their sins, do great and wonderful things for God. And that is the gospel message, that we don't have to be like the Pharisees. So why is it that we try so hard to be like them? And my next point is that God wants total commitment. Scripture, Luke 16, 13. No household slave can serve two masters, since he will either hate one or love the other. He will will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot be slaves to both God and money. This is a very straightforward verse. And I feel like sometimes in American Christianity, we try to shy away from the commitment that God asks of us. That all we have to do is accept Jesus into our heart, and then we have a get out of hell free card. That's not what scripture says though. Now, when I say the word slavery, because we're American, we automatically assume southern plantation style of slavery based on one race oppressing another. 
That's not what biblical slavery was like, especially with the, the word household slave. Uh, they would have been treated very well. Um, they would have been in charge of usually the master's estate and would have been considered part of the family. But they were still bonded to a master. And we shy away from that. Many of our Bibles reflect that, calling, translating the Greek word for slave as servant or bondservant. But in reality, we are slaves to Christ. We are bonded to Christ. So in this context, Jesus uses the word slave to indicate total bondage or total commitment to one master or another. In the specific context, Jesus talks about money. He says that we cannot be slaves to both God and money. And Jesus talks about money more than any other topic in the Gospels. And why is that? Why does he spend so much time talking about money? And I believe it's because Jesus knows that the wealth or the mammon that we have can become our true master all too easily. We become slaves to wealth, bonded to wealth. But wealth is fleeting. Wealth is not what is genuine. Wealth is insignificant in comparison to the glory of all eternity. Jesus specifically speaks about money, but I believe it can be broadened out. It can be made more inclusive. I think the statement can be made about many different things in our life that distract us from God, that we are slaves to, that are not God. Are we a slave to our work? A slave to an addiction? A slave to an unhealthy sexual behavior? A slave to the pursuit of more? A slave to our husband or our wife or our children? a slave to anything in our life that is not God. And I feel so inadequate to be saying this to you because I know that for me recently, I have not been a slave to Christ. There have been other things in my life that have been more important, that I have devoted more time, more energy, more resources to that are not God. I have not been all in for God. And we all struggle with this. It's hard to be all in for God. It's hard. But Christianity is not easy. And I think that many times in America, we try to make it easy. We try to make it so simple. And while the gospel message is simple, come and receive the gift. What it asks of us to lay down our lives, to take up an execution device daily and follow God is anything but simple. Revelation chapter three, verses 15 through 16. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's a pretty graphic image when you think about Jesus vomiting. You don't usually see that on the nice church paintings of Jesus of him vomiting. (laughs) But that's... That's what the image is. Very convicting. Jesus is repulsed by our casual Christianity. He doesn't want casual faith. He doesn't want part of our life. He wants our whole being. Some of us might come to church for an hour. Maybe we'll even go to Sunday school. But that's about it. God doesn't really play any part in our life. Maybe I have a cross hanging in my home. Maybe I might have a plaque that says, God bless this house. But God isn't really my master at all. And so we need to ask ourselves, who is our true master? Is it the God of all creation who created everything, including 
us and all of our intricate details and our personality and every little thing about us? Or is it the stuff that he created? That's our master. So why should we be totally committed to God? Why does God ask so much of us? Why does this matter at all? One of the principles in leadership my dad's been teaching me is that you don't ask anyone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And God does this. We are totally committed to God because God is totally committed to us. God could have left us where we were. He could have left us in bondage to sin. He could have left us to suffer the consequences of sin, which is death. He could have abandoned us and ignored us, but he didn't. He sent his son, his only son, to come and redeem us, to give us new life, to give us a new purpose, so that we might no longer be slaves to sin, no longer be slaves to death, no longer be slaves to what has been holding us down. He came and died, and he was so committed to us that he died on a cross for us. And not only that, but God sends himself, he sends his spirit to us to live in us, to dwell in us, to encourage us, to have us go on to perfection in Christ Jesus. It's a high stakes poker game, and God has gone all in on us. Will you be all in on him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your commitment to us. We thank you that even though we may be slaves to other things, that you are always committed to us. Father, I ask that, that this day we choose you. We choose to be slaves to you every day from here on out. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I hope that you know that Chapelwood United Methodist Church exists to help ourselves and others take our next step in our faith journey with Christ. Um, we're not inviting uh, folks who join the church today to take a trip out of the country to Belize, right? Usually that's not your first step. In fact, um, I don't know if Michael Moss is here. Michael Moss always reminds me to be sure to preach, Peter, on that first step. And Jeremy's done a great job today of reminding us about the importance of um, not being um, an image a manager of our faith, uh, but being honest uh, with God, seeking repentance for our sins, and living a forgiven life. That's the first step. But we'd love to walk with you throughout all the steps uh, as you um, feel called uh, into ministry, um, uh, called to make a difference in your family and in your world. Uh, we want to walk with you as you take those next steps. Um, there are next step opportunities um, in your uh, bulletin. One of the next step opportunities could be going to lunch with me right now. Um, after uh, service in the Fellowship Hall, there'll be lunch and a training for Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School is next weekend. It's from Friday to Sunday. Uh, we would love uh, for everyone to help in some way uh, for Vacation Bible School. It's a great opportunity for kids to hear about the gospel and to read about the Bible and see role models like yourselves. Um, but also, uh, if today's the day that you feel called to join the church, if this place is feeling like home uh, and you'd like to uh, become part of the family, we'd love for you to walk down during our closing hymn. Our closing hymn is Be Thou My Vision on page 451. Why don't we stand as we sing together?
So our intern, Jeremy, has the benediction, and I want to point over here to Joycelyn and Susan, uh, who are Stephen ministers. If you'd like somebody to pray with you today or to arrange care for somebody you love, um, they're ready to do that today. So, Jeremy. If you would join hands with those around you and join me in today's benediction. Go now knowing that the God of all creation, the Father of everything, is totally committed to you. Go now being committed to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.